Hello, everyone. This is Jane Marie Barnes with the Wine and Politics Podcast. And on this episode, I got to interview my brother, Scully, who is 22 years old and actually a member of Gen Z. And so as a Gen Zer, he gives us an interesting and really refreshing perspective on how the younger generation thinks about politics. And he shares specifically what he thinks of where our government has ultimately failed, not just from the policies of the current administration, but really over the last few decades. And at the end of the episode, we talk about our founding fathers and the beginning of this country. And he offers some interesting fun facts that might actually encourage young people to get more involved in politics and engaged in conversations about our country's future. Because ultimately, we're the ones who are going to be living with the decisions that we make today, right? Anyways, I had the best time talking to Scully, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, back to the Wine and Politics podcast, where we bring on guests with different points of view all across the political spectrum or have something different and interesting to offer the conversation. And we try to find common ground. So I am your host, Jane Marie Barnes. Thank you all so much for coming back and listening to the next episode of the Wine and Politics podcast. And I am really excited to announce my next guest, my brother, Scully Genevine. Okay, that intro was awesome. Thank you. And to follow up on your intro, I'm not worried at all about finding common ground between us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say, I think you do have an interesting perspective, though, because you are younger you are in the Gen Z. That's that's fair. The, I, the generation of young people. I would hope that I have something interesting to offer, but we'll see. <laughs> no, I think you will have you know an interesting perspective because of what we see even in this generation and how everyone, at least in Gen Z, has they've become the social media generation. They live their lives on TikTok or Instagram, or I guess Instagram's kind of old news for y'all now, isn't it? I mean, Instagram <laughs> is pretty much only what I use. Oh, okay. So that I makes mean, me feel I, not I'm on TikTok a little bit, but it's mostly just Instagram. Okay. Facebook is way old news, but I think that's pretty For common. like everybody. Yeah. Except yeah. for, you know, like our parents. Yeah. Dad. <laughs> Dad. If you're listening, get off Facebook. <laughs> get on Instagram and get off Facebook. <laughs> Actually, I think I want him to stay on Facebook and not Instagram because I want something to be, you know, separate yeah. from what he sees well, every day. See, but then if, if their generation does get on Instagram, it's going to be uncool. And then everybody will just be on TikTok. That's a good point. Yeah, and we really don't want that because it's owned by China and they probably like data mine us on TikTok anyway. Oh, heavily. So dad, if you're listening, stay on Facebook. <laughs> Moral of the story. Moral of the story. <laughs> All right, Scully. So I brought you on today so that we could talk about overarching government policies and subsequent failure in a lot of people's points of view. And specifically as it relates to our voter integrity, because I know that has been a big subject ever since 2020 and before that. So voter integrity, um, as well as the structure of our government and maybe limitations that could be imposed on our government to keep them accountable to the people. And lastly, talking about our national debt, because in those three topics, a lot of people would agree that the government has failed. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think, you know, the way our founding fathers set up the government, it was definitely a societal and governmental marvel. I think it was founded on very fundamentally good principles. And I just think that in today's society, it's definitely become, you know, a little bit outdated. There are some aspects that could definitely be improved. But ultimately, I think it has failed America in a big way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think those are some great topics to go into. Cool. And before we jump right in, I do want to get your perspective coming from Gen Z. You know, you're the youngest generation. Y'all's generation will be here after mine, you know, and I'm only a few years older than you. But y'all are the future of America. 
And so in your eyes, are there things that the government could be doing better or things that they just haven't done at all? that you think would be a better a better use of resources because a lot of what gen z cares about right now is climate change a lot of what they care about right now is mental health there's a different kind of narrative out there right now that people in the millennial generation or gen x or baby boomers don't really understand that resonate with gen z so what are going to be the bigger focuses of the future well i think as a whole gen z is striving to be a lot more inclusive I think that's definitely a trend that we'll see um, in the coming years as, you know, my generation sort of comes into positions of leadership and authority. I think inclusion is a big aspect of importance for us. But ultimately, I think that as Gen Z, we would agree that the government definitely could be improved upon. So going back to your comment about inclusion, would you expand on what you mean by that? Because when I think of inclusion, I think of DE&I, which is diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. Yeah. So when I say inclusion, I think of equality of opportunity. That's something that the country could substantially benefit from. Now, there's an important distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. So what you've seen with progressive Democrats in government today is they're all about equality of outcome. And that means taking from some people and giving to others. Now, that might sound good on paper, but when you think about someone who's worked their butt off to get what they have, the idea of taking that away from someone and giving it someone else who maybe doesn't deserve it. I mean, that's a very conservative point of view, but I think it's a very valid point of view. So I think it's important to make the distinction because equality of opportunity, it's trying to you know make people start at relatively the same point. Now, there's always going to be those with more, those with less. It's not going to be 100% perfect. But any initiative that tries to promote the idea of everyone starts at the same point, that way everyone can showcase what they have, what skills they have, how they can contribute to society, what value they can offer the world. I'm all for that because that's the best way for a society to progress. And I think that is probably something that Gen Z as a whole would agree about. We're, we're sort of just fed up with the old way of doing things. We want change, like I said. There are elements of government that can be substantially improved. And I think the current state of things right now is just, it's ultimately failing us. And I'm totally for change if it means equality of opportunity. And that's sort of to bring it all full circle. That's what I mean by inclusion. We need to include people that have something to offer. But I do think it's important to make the distinction of including people for the sake of achieving the same outcome. I'm all for including people for the sake of achieving the same opportunity. Or being given the same opportunity to do with what they will. Exactly. I really appreciate you saying that because I think a misconception of people on the left, of individuals on the right, is that we're really only looking for the big guy with the big money to win at the end of the day. You know, that establishment GOP kind of mentality where we're for the big corporations. So... Hearing you say that I think is very refreshing because as a younger person who is a part of the Gen Z group, having everybody start on a level playing field in order to excel however they may should be universally accepted. Completely agree. And your your note about government failure is very prevalent because right now in this day and age, there is another misconception that the government is supposed to fix your problems. And that's literally what you were speaking to when you said that the Democrats who are all for equal outcomes or equity is another way of trying to tell the American people that, hey, if you're a disadvantaged individual, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure that you have nothing to worry about. And that's not life. Yeah. I mean, going back to JFK, he was a very popular president, very well liked up until he was assassinated. And he had the famous quote, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It goes, it's the same principle for government. You know, you shouldn't be relying on the government for anything. And I get that, you know, a lot of people, they start off in a very unfortunate position and they rely on the government for some things. I totally sympathize with that. I don't think that handouts from the government or entitlements from the government should be completely thrown out. Some people, they find themselves in unfortunate circumstances and a lot of the time it's very hard to get out of that. But I think as a whole, government should not be sustaining your life. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you should be working, you know, you should be providing for yourself as best as you can, providing for your family as best as you can. And you ultimately, I just don't think that you should rely on the government. When the founding fathers designed the constitution and how they wanted to lay out the framework for the United States, I don't think that they had the intention of the government controlling every aspect of your life and sustaining, you know, the population. The government exists to serve the population. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. And the last thing I'll really say about what you mentioned about handouts, entitlements, all that stuff, is if you don't, if you're not careful, you subsequently give the government more and more power. You cede your individual freedoms over to the government, and you think it's so that they'll go and take care of you. But with more power, we're all humans. So with more power comes more corruption more easily. And that's kind of what you're seeing now. I don't think anybody would disagree that there is a large portion of our government that has probably been pretty corrupt for a long time. Yeah, I think any civilization, any society going back to however you define the start of mankind. Right. I always think like ancient Rome as the first real like government civilization that we look to. I think every civilization, every society from here since let's say ancient Rome, I am fairly certain every one of those has had some degree of corruption. Now there might've been some more corrupt than others, but there's definitely been some degree in every civilization in that time period. And, you know, actually Bernie Sanders was saying on the Senate floor, this was like early August, early this month, he was reading some statistics and, you know, the latest Gallup poll statistics that he was reading say that Congress has like a 16% approval rating with 82, 82% of people saying that they disapprove of, of, but, of Congress. Yeah. <laughs> That's he not al- a surprise. That's yeah. Crazy. He also cited a University of Chicago poll that says a strong majority of Americans think that government is, quote, corrupt and rigged against me, unquote. He also cited a USA Today poll that said a strong majority think that neither party, Democrats or Republicans, respond to their needs and feel that we need a multi-party system. So, I mean, that's not just us two talking. That's not only, you know, what polls are saying, but Bernie Sanders, Sanders. who is the epitome of opposite of our political views. He said that on the House or on the Senate floor. Wow. Earlier this month, early August. So that's nuts. Yeah, I definitely don't think that it's something that just you and I feel or just me Mm -hmm. or just Gen Z. I think that's a pretty widely held view. Yeah, and and that's actually a great segue into our first real subtopic about voting because our founding fathers designed the Constitution and our system of government, which is a democratic republic, not just a full-blown democracy, so that the people held the power. It was supposed to be and is still supposed to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And we, as citizens of a democratic republic, have the right, the God-given right, to exercise our power through voting. And what we're seeing today is even our voting system can be subject to corruption. And so before we jump into a discussion around voting integrity, I first want to give a little bit of a background into our voting process and system in the United States. So our voting system is a little, it's not as intuitive as you would think because of this big establishment process that we call the Electoral College. And did you know that when you actually go to vote, in a general presidential election on the first Tuesday of November every four years, and you vote for the Republican candidate. Let's just say it was 2020 and you voted for Donald Trump. You think that you're actually voting for Donald Trump, but what you're actually doing is voting for what they call a slate of Republican electors designated for the state of Texas to put their ballots in. On the opposite side of the aisle, let's say your friend, I don't know, friend named Will, I'm made of a name (laughs) for any of Scully's friends that are named Will out there. I'm not targeting you, I promise. But let's just say he goes in and he went into the 2020 election and he voted for Joe Biden. He wasn't actually voting for Joe Biden. He was voting for the slate of Democrat electors that were appointed by the state of Texas to go and submit ballots on, on everybody's behalf for the president. And so what happens here is when you finally get the popular vote in Texas, Trump won Texas 
in 2020, you get 51% of the popular vote in Texas voting technically for the Republican state electors, then it's a winner take all sort of mentality. And so the entire state of Texas has by popular vote voted to send the Republican electors to choose the president. And that's how he wins those electoral votes. And it's like 270 electoral votes, yep. right? something like that. So 538 total votes make up the Electoral College. It's kind of representative of what you see in Congress as well. So each state gets two senators. Each state also gets two votes. And then states get additional representatives in Congress based on their population size. Same thing. Um, the same number of votes are designated to the Electoral College based on population size. So the minimum amount of votes you can get or electors that you can send to choose the president is three. Two votes for, you know, for your state uh, and then another one based on population and then however many. So that's why California has like 55 or I don't know what the number is now, but Texas has 38. And that's because of the 36 districts, quote unquote, plus the two Senate seats. So that's how the Electoral College is broken out. And yeah, you're right. You need 270 votes because that's the majority. So if you get 270 votes, the other person can't beat you. So the reason the Electoral College is important is because it actually helps to create a buffer between the general population and gives the states more power, actually, in deciding a president. And so in 2020, Hillary Clinton went, or not 2020, in 2016, Hillary Clinton went on and on about how she won the popular vote. But because it's a winner-take-all mentality broken down by popular vote in each state, it actually does give the states more power and the federal government less power. So it's an important distinction and an important element of our voting process to stay intact. Because if we only looked at the popular vote, it would be way easier for the majority, you know, 51% of people to tyrannize the population of the minority. Majority rule is a big reason why democracies and you know in history have just collapsed because there hasn't been a system of checks and balances to keep everybody treated fairly and represented fairly. So I say that because the way that we decide who the leaders of our country are going to be is very intentional. So what I'll say about the electoral college, it seems in at least in my lifetime, it seems like the Democrats have always gotten the popular vote. So it definitely works out in my favor for the party I support that despite being less likely to win the popular vote, the party I support still has, you know, a good chance to win the presidency as a result of the electoral college. While acknowledging that some people and Gen Z specifically have said that we should just get rid of the electoral college. I don't support that just because I don't really see how it's had well, an I adverse effect. Aside from the whole popular vote argument? A lot of people argue that the Electoral College is outdated, but the important thing about it is think about where the majority of people live. They live in California in big cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Boston, a lot of you know East and West Coast cities. But how can you say that what's best for people who live in those big urban areas who have a completely different lifestyle and certain points of view and ideologies, how can you say that what is good for them is also good for the farmers in Ohio or West Texas? Yeah, completely agree. And when you look at large crowded cities, a lot of the time they're going to have the same points of view because it, you know, it's a very centralized mass of people that are exposed to roughly the same ideologies. Mm -hmm. If you look at rural America, that's a very different population. There's still a lot of people that make up that part of the population. And yeah, exactly what you said. What applies to one doesn't necessarily apply to the other. And think about the cultural differences between states. What somebody does in L.A. on a Friday night might be very different than what somebody in Kansas does. I mean, or just what their values are. It is so important for states to maintain individual power because even with what's going on, and I know we're not talking about the border right now in this podcast, but what's been going on at the border in Texas and how that is a Texas specific problem that the national government has failed to address because they don't care and it benefits them in a way, but it doesn't benefit Texas and our governor and our government in Texas has a responsibility to us to make our lives better first. 
yeah. And so I guess just to piggyback off that, I mean, I'm definitely in favor of the states having more power because what applies to Texas does not apply to California or New York. Right. So from that aspect, I guess, you know, I don't really have an issue with the electoral college. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know much about it other than what you just told me. <laughs> so I, I trust that if you say it's designed to give more power to the states, then I'm all for it. And it is a system of checks and balances, right? But yeah, so that's really the electoral college as a whole. So we, as the general population, vote for the electoral college delegates. Those delegates actually meet on, I think it's the first or second Monday of December after the election. And they decide who the president is and vice president. And then those votes get certified on January 6th in Congress and the vice president selects the president and then that person gets inaugurated on January 20th. So that's really the overview of our voting system, but it is the way for citizens to practice our civic duty and right. And we should be informed citizens. I had Dusty on the podcast and something that we both agreed on is that people should vote if they're informed. Completely agree. I remember listening to that podcast and one of y'all was saying, pick a couple of topics that you care about, do your research, and then vote accordingly. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't you can't vote if you don't know what's really going on and if you're being told what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very unspoken thing that people need to be aware of. It's like wherever they're getting their news from, whoever's giving you that news is making a profit regardless of what platform you're using, whether you're listening to CNN or Fox News, wherever you're getting your news, it's designed so that you only get further entrenched in your views. Mm-hmm. And you're not exposed to the other side. You're not even willing to hear their arguments because you become so entrenched and so alienated against the other side. And so what's important to consider is that if you're not an informed citizen, then you could be making a choice for something that really isn't what you want or is not in your best interest. Totally agree. And one thing that's really cool in my eyes about Gen Z is y'all seem to be a very politically engaged generation. And I do think the left has done a better job than the right at appealing to a younger generation because they come across as the party of being compassionate. Yeah, I agree. I also think that the left is better at making ideas sound good. Yes. I think that the left at its core up until recently with whatever's going on with the woke mob, wokeism, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> at its core, I think the Democratic Party values looking out for everyone. They believe in compassion. Now, that doesn't mean I'm saying that Republicans don't feel that way. I'm just saying that the parties go about it differently in addressing that. The Democratic Party is really good at making things sound good. For example, climate change. A lot of people agree that climate change is a real thing. And I guess it depends on where you get your news from. But if it is a real thing, personally, I think it is. Whether or not it's as big as the Democratic Party claims is you know, up for question. But I think that on the surface, if you hear someone say, oh, like climate change is a real thing, like we need to stop using oil and go only to renewables. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. Clean energy. That sounds good. But what are the actual implications for that? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't have a grid that can support 100% change from fossil fuels to renewables. It sounds good. It's not feasible right now, though. Right. Republicans understand that. Mm-hmm. And young Republicans are able to sniff that out. They're yeah. able to actually question it and say, okay, what's your plan? I think young Democrats... They don't know the answer to that. No, I think Be- you're completely right. Because it just sounds good. So mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, okay, I'm just good with that. Do Let's whatever do you it. need to do to get that to happen. Yeah. And that's actually a really good segue because when talking about how Democrats know how to spin things and make them sound really good, they also have a really, I mean, it's a talent, <laughs> honestly, of making initiatives that Republicans are pushing for really bad. And an example of that is the voter suppression laws they keep talking about where governments in red states or even uh, you know Republican representative senators in Congress who try to introduce legislation that helps to make elections more fair and secure, especially since there was a lot of uncertainty around the 2020 election and the processes there and how everything may or may not have been above board. One thing that a lot of Republican conservative legislatures wanted to introduce were voter ID laws. You know, making sure that you had an ID that said you were who you say you are when you're going to cast a vote. 
you're a citizen of this country. You need to prove that you're a citizen. You need to prove a place of residence. You need to prove that you are who you say you are. And Democrats and people on the left who are very interested in obtaining future voters from people who have immigrated illegally, frankly, across the border, don't love that. And so they've spun it. It's been spun to say that the people on the right are trying to suppress voters and they make it about race and about all these other social issues to heighten it emotionally. I'm personally, I'm so tired of hearing the word racist. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Voter ID laws being racist. I mean, come on. Like I can't get on board with that. I'm totally on board with verification. Are you who you say you are? Mm -hmm. If you are great vote. Mm-hmm. regardless of whether you're informed or not, which is, you know, you a literally topic. have to show your license at a liquor store to buy alcohol. Sometimes you have to show it at a restaurant when you're ordering wine. Yeah. And the whole, you know, 2020 election, you were saying people are questioning whether it was above board, particularly Donald Trump. <laughs> Joe Biden won more counties than Hillary Clinton. Are, are, like, are, are you serious? I I don't think anybody who voted for Joe Biden thought that he was the best candidate that the Democratic Party could have offered up. Yeah. I don't think one person thought that. I mean, he hardly campaigned. They might, you know, say, oh, it's being safe because of COVID. I mean, that's what they would say. They, they, They might say that. He hardly campaigned. He demonstrated, you know, very limited cognitive ability. And he's my president. I su- I'm going to support him because he's my president. I didn't vote for him. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean he's not my president. I hate when people say, not my president. It's so divisive. Yeah, it's so divisive. It's like, okay, he represents the United States. I'm a citizen of the United States. I will support my president and everything that he does. I might not agree with it, but he's my president. I, that's what I have to do. And I just don't think that anyone thought that he was actually capable of being president. And what that goes to say is that more people were anti-Trump. So I, I, I think hardly anyone was pro-Biden. I think the vast majority of people who voted for Biden were just anti-Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was in Austin when you know that election wrapped up and the Biden parade was just absurd in wow. downtown. I can imagine. People not from Texas. I mean, I guess they won't understand, but like, you know, Austin's pretty liberal. I think, you know, all the major cities are pretty liberal. But circling back to voter ID laws and you know, how they can be racist. Definitely don't agree with that. I agree with you should show proof that you are who you say you are. And then I totally support your right to vote. If you're not who you say you are, how can there be any integrity in the election? And how can there be any absolute certainty that whoever got elected should have been Mm -hmm. the president? And I looked this up this past week. I searched, are voter ID laws racist? And of course, it gave me a bunch of articles that say, studies show that, you know, voter ID laws suppress the minority vote. I'm like, okay, where's the study? No link to the study. I'm just like, where is it? Really? Show me the study. And even if the study does exist, I still am not sure that I believe it. Even if the studies do exist, it's really easy to spin statistics based on the way you want to spin them. I completely agree. Right or left. I'm not saying people on the right aren't guilty of that either, but you can find statistics to back up your narrative. Yeah, completely agree. And going back to what you were saying about you need an ID to buy alcohol. Okay, then you should need an ID to vote for the president of the United (laughs) States. Do you know who Ami Horowitz is? Mm -hmm. Have you seen his videos? No. He's this conservative journalist who like goes out and makes videos. He goes and interviews people on the street and like asks them about controversial topics. One of them is voter ID laws. But basically, he's going around in this neighborhood, and I, th- I think it's California. I'd have to double check. But he's going around asking people about voter ID laws. And he separates the video into two segments. The first one is he's going around asking people, he's like, are voter ID laws racist? And they're like, yes. Um, he's like, why do you think so? And some of the answers are like, Well, you know, the people that are being suppressed by voter ID laws don't have access to the kinds of ID needed to vote or they don't have access or they don't have access or they don't have access. That that's like the point that's being hammered home. And they're all white. They're all white. (laughs) Then he flips to the second half of the video. He goes around to a different part of town asking about the same topic. He says to a largely black crowd he asks every individual he's like do you have id they're like yes everyone i know has id he's like have you ever had trouble getting id no you need id to live to do anything to do anything you need it and he's like have you ever not had an id they're like no i've always had one 
And then he's like, what would you think if someone said that you might not have good access to getting it, an ID? And they're like, oh, that's, that's ignorant. That's a little racist. And, huh. and he also says like, do you know where the DMV is? And they're like, yeah, it's on so, such and such and such and such street. So it's like back to what we were saying about studies. It's like studies can be misconstrued, but even if they're accurate, I trust the word on the street more than I trust that. Right. Because you're and, talking to an individual who yeah. could or could not be affected by it. Not a, not a data point. An ID is something that is essential you have to, to have function ID. in society. Yeah. And if you're functioning in society, then yes, you should be able to vote. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. And I think also the people on the left and mainstream media need a reason to create an enemy out of the other side. And it is really just so divisive and really short-sighted because a lot of it is for ratings. A lot of it is to fire people up with emotions. And honestly, I think a lot of people on the left, we all saw what happened in 2020. Cities burned. And it's an easy way for the federal government to grab more power when the country is in a state of chaos. And so when people on the right are trying to structure our voting laws and bring a little bit more order back into society with ways of keeping elections, as an example, fair and with integrity, they go crazy on a marketing campaign against literally having a voter ID when you go vote. So along with what all we saw in 2020 with people questioning election integrity, it wasn't just because Donald Trump said that the vote, the election was stolen. It was because of all these new laws that different states implemented because of COVID. Mail-in ballots was one of them. Yeah, and I'll just cut in real quick. I think it was all facilitated by the idea that Joe Biden won. Like, right. like, I feel like to the average American, that seemed just like... Well, especially because Trump looked to be such in the lead in the middle of the night. And then yeah. all of a sudden, all of a sudden yeah. Joe Biden spiked just enough. And I don't even want to talk about what did or didn't happen or if there was actually true election fraud. The point that I really want to make here is because of the laws due to COVID that multiple states put in place, like in Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, that opened the floodgates for mail-in ballots, which makes it very easy for shenanigans to happen. In New Jersey, there were two people who got caught. One guy got caught stealing ballots out of people's mailboxes, and another guy got caught forging signatures on prospective voters' ballots for the candidate he wanted. There's a whole bunch of different things that could happen there. And those were just the people that got caught. Right. Yeah. And even for, you know, less nefarious reasons, bureaucratic incompetence is a huge reason why mail-in ballots is a bad idea. One of the reports I read during Wisconsin's primary, it was one of the first primaries during COVID, and 1,600 ballots were found in a mail processing center the day after the election. 23,000 votes were rejected due to missing information. And there was no way of knowing if one person got only one ballot. That That's just ridiculous. Yeah. I, I think going back to what you were saying about the Electoral College, you know, it sounds like 23,000 votes doesn't sound like that much when you consider the entire U.S. population. Right. But going back to the Electoral College and what it means for states, a candidate will get their prospective state's votes based on how the state votes. And what matters is the districts within those states. 23,000 votes can sway a district significantly. And that's why people had a lot of questions. Because if there was anything intentional that happened in the election, all you had to do was be strategic about where those weird coincidences happened. Even in Virginia, 500,000 ballots went to wrong addresses or were addressed to dead people or one was addressed to a pet. 500,000? 500,000 in Virginia. Okay. Sheesh. I'm telling you, like this is a big deal. Another couple reasons why elections could be corrupt or why you wouldn't want to expand mail-in ballots to be more widespread and commonly used is because ballot harvesting is a new thing now. Do you know what ballot harvesting is? Inform me. Basically, ballot harvesting allows third-party organizations, a lot of which are politically active and have a specific political agenda. Of course to collect and deliver ballots at a given location, transport those ballots, and then deliver them to election offices. So there's literally no way, there's no chain of custody, there's no process to make sure that everything is happening, again, above board. Nobody knows if those politically activated people are 
changing the ballots, tampering with them, changing them out. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of stuff that could happen under our noses just because nobody's watching them. There's plenty of videos we've seen out there of people just stuffing ballots into a mailbox in, you know, in mass, like in like hundreds of them at one time. So there's a lot of shenanigans that happen. And lastly, in regards to the implications around mail-in ballots, this can also cause really long delays in determining the results. And even if everything happened above board, there were no shenanigans, the longer time it takes to certify an election, the longer people are going to be sitting around waiting and become more fearful of the actual legitimacy of that election. Completely agree. It, it needs to be quick. A hundred percent. It should not be dragged out. No. And in order to believe that what the left says, which is corrupt voting practices don't happen, they don't exist, it's just a fabrication from the right, or they might exist, but they're so minor that it doesn't even matter, you would have to know that, without a doubt, that voter registration rolls, so you know the list of people who are registered to vote, are accurate and secure from fraudulent registrations, which is not true. According to a Pew Research Center poll, 24 million voter registrations in the U.S. are currently invalid or significantly inaccurate. 24 million. Do you know how many people are registered to vote? I don't call it 130 million people are registered to vote. That's a huge chunk. Yes. And they believe Pew Research Center, again, says 3 million people are believed to be registered to vote in more than one state. So can you tell me after a left-leaning think tank has those sorts of statistics that voter registration rolls are accurate and secure and not fraudulent? No. Definitely not. And the other part of it is that you would have to believe that no one's trying to manipulate results. Yeah. And a lot of people have a lot to gain from certain people being in office. That's just the nature of the game. Goes back to what we were saying about corruption. It does. There's definitely a degree of corruption in the U.S. government. And actually, that's such a good segue into our next topic about term limits. So in, I think a lot of people, most Americans actually, would agree that we should add term limits to members of Congress. Even the president has term limits. He's only allowed to run for office twice. And so the fact that we don't have term limits on seats in Congress is a little wild to me. And what's interesting is when I was even researching this earlier, this has been a part of the political discussion since the mid-90s. And one of the main platforms that the Republicans in 1994 in that midterm election promised was to implement term limits. But did that happen? Nope. Nope. <laughs> so currently, the House, if you're a U.S. House representative, you serve a two-year term. And it's unlimited. You can serve as many times as you want, but you always are up for re-election every two years. For the Senate, your term is six years, but you are also unlimited on how many times you can run for re-election. I looked at some of the longest standing representatives, and I think both of these guys have now passed away, but the longest serving U.S. House representative was this guy named John Dingle, who served for 59 years. 59. <laughs> Five, nine. Five, nine. Almost 60. Like, <laughs> literally the age of our parents. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And the longest serving member of the Senate, who has also passed away, was this guy named Robert Byrd. And he was a senator for 51 years. Half of a century. Oh, my gosh. How? how? So, do you know what the average age is for congressional members? Tell me. For the House, it's 58. <laughs> 58. Our parents' age, literally. The average age for the Senate is 64. That's not young. That's not young. Like, we need some youth, okay? <laughs> we need some youth in Congress. Going back to, like, what we were talking about with Gen Z, we would love to see some youth mm -hmm. in Congress. I think one of the reasons AOC is so popular yeah. is because she's young. She brings, you know, a sort of energy to Congress. And while I don't agree with a lot of not only her policies, but what she does in general, you know, I, I respect the fact that she's bringing something new to Washington. I, I respect that. I think you're right. That's why she has so much popularity. Yeah, completely agree. She, she's got a lot of popularity among my generation simply because of her age. Mm -hmm. That's so true. We need somebody on the right that way. 
in Congress. And it's gotten younger in recent years, I'm pretty sure. There was that one representative, Madison Cawthorn. He was the, he was like 26 or something uh and was in North Carolina. Yeah. Well, we don't have someone that's like as outspoken as AOC on the right, but. And I'll give it to her. She's charismatic. She has the energy. She's, she probably draws more of that younger Gen Z crowd into the conversation honestly having her as somebody's active who's a young person representative of young people is a huge draw yeah agree and the republican party could definitely use some of that honestly i don't really have a preference as to whether you know the republican party has someone like that i mean i think it takes some pretty extreme points of view to gain that sort of attention yeah, you make a splash. Yeah. So I'm definitely in favor of, you know, getting some more youthful congressional members mm-hmm. in Congress. Definitely in favor of that. But, you know, going back to when I was talking about the average ages, you know, wh- why do you think that they've stayed in Washington that long? Do you think it's just because they love leadership? Do you think it's because they think that they're just doing such a good job? No. It's because there's power in Washington. Mm-hmm. There's money in Washington. Mm-hmm. The average net worth of a congressional member oh gosh now let me preface this goes back to 2018 data and it only considered 80 percent of congressional members the average net worth as of 2018 is 7.4 million what if if you are the average congressional member you have seven and a half million dollars to your name the median so i mean people like nancy pelosi will skew that number sure because her net worth is over 100 million so when you consider the median that number is still 1.2 million, which is significantly lower, but you're still a millionaire. You're still a millionaire on a $200,000 a year salary. Yeah. And that, that's a sizable salary for sure. Yeah. But if you're serving a two-year term or a six-year term, that's not going to get you to a million dollars when you're you know, supporting a family and whatnot, which just goes to show term limits. Come mm-hmm. on. We need them. Because ultimately, I think what it comes down to, term limits as a whole, circling back, when people start to campaign for re-election takes away from their productivity for serving the nation and it encourages them to vote a certain way on a certain bill because party leaders they'll make sure that all of their party members are in line mm-hmm. and they're voting not their conscience but what the party wants or what the party is demanding based on what they think the people want yes congress should vote for what the people want they should vote for their constituents but they should be voting their conscience they shouldn't be voting what their party leader tells them to vote, Mm -hmm. which is why term limits would be such a good idea because you free up the congressional member from being bound to what their party wants. So right now a house term is two years. Let's say it were six years and a Senate term were 10 years. Maybe you have one election in between something like that. Ultimately, I think it would be best if you had no reelection, you were voted for one term and then you're done. You free up the congressional member to vote their conscience and they're not distracted by oh well if i don't do what my party wants me to do then i'm not going to get reelected. they're not even worried about that because they're one and done Mm, that's true not only does it do that but it also discourages people from making a career out of politics yeah if you're serving for over 20 years i'm sure you've generated some expertise on how the government works but hey it's time to go we need some new thoughts we need some new energy we we need new people in here it, it needs to be more refreshed. I mean, especially if we as a country progress, we should stay up to date with what the people want, which changes over time. Yeah. And as you get into politics and once you get to that age, you're just becoming more entrenched in your mm-hmm. own views. You're not as open to hearing the other side. And that's something that this country in its current state definitely does not need. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to come to the middle, which is why I'm super glad that you started this. Thank you. Because honestly... I mean, I don't feel, and I think a lot of other people don't feel, that the government actually represents what we want and what we value. Clearly not, if Bernie Sanders said so. Yeah. Right now, Washington comes down to, it's not just, what do I want? What does my party want? It's making sure that the other side does not get what they want. Yeah. And also, it opens you up to so much corruption because you're also at the mercy of big business. The people who are financing your campaign. Yeah, lobbyists. Yeah, lobbyists who make sure that you vote a certain way. Otherwise, we're pulling your campaign funding for next term. And there's some lobbying that's good. There's some lobbying that's bad. Yeah, there's good and bad with everything. You do need some lobbying to get, you know, certain things done. There is, I don't know if you saw this headline, but you don't need a prescription to get a hearing aid anymore. As of like a couple weeks ago, that was due to lobbying efforts. 
So lobbying is good in some aspects. Right. It's bad in a lot of aspects, I think. But yeah, it just goes to show like if lobbyists don't have that power over you because they can't contribute to your reelection campaign because you can't get reelected, that takes out a lot of possibilities for Mm-hmm. corruption I, it I, mean, does. I don't want to use corruption but like no but corruption is i think it's the right word because the longer that you're in politics the cozier you get with lobbyists the more money you get from them the less you're thinking with your conscience the more you're thinking about how badly you want to stay there so that you keep your money coming in and you maintain however many hundred million dollars if you're nancy pelosi or you know even 1.2 million is the median income i mean it's just a breeding ground for potential corruption and we're humans I mean, we're not perfect. It's easy to be corrupted the longer you're in politics. Yeah. And the longer you're in politics, like we said, they're pretty old people. There's a good amount of congressional members that are over 80. Um, I, I <laughs> Senator Chuck Grassley, he's a Republican. So I'll hate on the Republicans for a second. He's been... Well, well, that's the important thing. We have to acknowledge what the truth is. And yeah. So, yeah. So, so keep going. Who else is on the list? Chuck Grassley, he's a senator from Iowa. He's been in he's been in the Senate for forty seven years. Still sitting. How guess how old he is? Eighty four. Eighty eight. He's almost ninety. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Mitch McConnell, another Republican. Yeah. He's been in the Senate or been in Congress for thirty seven years. He's eighty. What is he, the Senate minority leader? Yeah. <laughs> like Chuck Schumer. He's he's a spring chicken. How yeah. guess how old he is? It's um it's gotta be in the eighties, isn't he's, it? He's he's seventy one. Still. <laughs> Still, come on. I actually, I saw a clip on my TikTok feed one time and it was an Instagram exec testifying before Congress and one Congress member was like grilling this lady about Finstas, you know. Fake Instas? A fake Insta. A fake Instagram for those of you who don't get on Instagram. So coming from Gen Z, everyone knows what a Finsta is. Mm -hmm. Finsta, among the people that I know, they'll create them for like, I don't know, food accounts or just something that only their friends follow it's, it's sort of like the equivalent of a private Snapchat story. This congressional member was grilling this lady about Finsta being a product that they offer and how it's doing all these bad things. He had no idea what he was talking about. He has no business asking a question on that subject because he has no idea what's going on. No, he's not in touch. He's not, he's not in touch. And that's a great point to bring it all full circle is that the older you are, the less you are in touch with younger generations, younger generations. And you have no idea what they want or what they need, what they support, what they don't. Yeah. So you shouldn't be serving them. Yeah. And I'm glad we're talking about this because it was actually something me and Nash talked about in an episode we recorded earlier, we were speaking specifically about the Democratic Party and how they have alienated themselves away from so many groups more in the middle that they are now out of touch too. And so when you're not resonating with the people who you're supposed to be representing to kind of tie it all together, you're out of touch and you shouldn't be representing them. You just shouldn't or change your messaging. So I was also looking at cons for term limits. So the argument against implementing them. Let me guess. Is it like people who have more experience in Congress have more expertise to offer? That's exactly it. Yeah. (laughs) And that makes sense. But I think there are tons of well-educated, experienced people not working for the government Mm -hmm. that could step in and do that job very effectively, even if they're on the older side. Yeah. Even if they're in their 60s, they, they, be, they still have some something to offer. What if we came to a compromise between, I mean, I know we're both pro term limits, but if we came to a compromise for the argument against them and just said there should be an age of retirement, like once you turn 70 or something, maybe 75, retire. Yeah, I like that too. The people who are representing us in Congress are not actually representative of the population of America. Right. And they also have no concern for tomorrow. They've lived their life. They've made their career, regardless if it's been in Washington, private sector, whatever. They've made their money. They're doing what they want. They don't really care. And this could be a question offered to the left is if you're concerned with climate change, why do you think that a 65 year old Congress member should be anyway concerned about that if that's a 20 or 30 year in the future issue. Why would you support them to keep on serving? Why wouldn't you support term limits from that aspect? Yeah. So this isn't a partisan issue. This is just a common sense thing. For sure. And kind of what we were saying earlier, I do think most Americans are for term limits. The people who really aren't are the incumbents who stand to gain everything from staying in Congress because you have more power, you have more money, you have more authority. So going back to the point of the longer you're in Congress, the more expertise you have on how things run. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm okay with lengthening out the terms to sort of, you know, mitigate that loss of experience. 
Yeah. I just don't support someone spending some of their time that they should be serving the country on worrying about being reelected. I totally agree, which is a really great segue into our last topic, which is really about national debt. So we have members of Congress who are making decisions about America's finances and using the excuse that, oh, we can just address it later on. But it never gets addressed later on. And the issue continues to pile up and pile up and pile up. Me and Scott talked about this on our episode. But currently, our national debt stands today, August 21st, at $30.7 trillion. Absolutely absurd. The American economy last in 2021 was just above $23 trillion. So we'd need a year and three months to recover that debt if our entire economy, every dollar spent went toward paying the debt. Can, wow. can you imagine just being senile for a year and three months? Everyone would have to do that. I can't imagine it. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. I don't know how you come back from this. I really don't know what the solution is other than to vastly decrease government budgets. But you can't do that when Congress passes something like the Inflation Reduction Act, which adds, what, was it 87,000 IRS agents to the government? Yeah, that's one of the headlines. I think the big takeaway is that if government is spending money, they're worsening inflation. Yeah. They're injecting more money into the economy. Totally. And, you know, Scott and I did talk about how that really just hurts the American people. Basically, when the government is printing money, printing money, printing money, it leads to more and more inflation because there's more dollars in the marketplace. It's less valuable. And when you're raising government spending in a time of crisis, which is what you should be doing, and frankly, I don't feel like there was enough crisis happening to justify the amount of trillions of dollars that we were spending in the last couple of years. And because of that, our national debt's going up. To combat that, we can tax the rich, which never actually ends up taxing the rich. Let me just interject real quick, and then I don't want you to lose that thought. I don't know how many people know this, but this goes back to Democrats making things sound good. Tax the rich, make the 1% pay their fair share. The top 1% pay more taxes every year than the bottom 90, 90 percent combined. What? So what do you, what does he even mean when he says fair share? That sounds like a lot more than the, their fair share. I will say the rich, they're good about limiting their taxes because they purchase assets and they have, you know, ways to carry write-offs over. And what I mean by that is like anything you can write off from your taxes, they're good at implementing those. If they have a business on the side that maybe loses money or it's a business in air quotes that loses money. They're, they're good about maneuvering well financially to pay fewer in taxes. Mm -hmm. Regardless, the top 1% pays more than the bottom 90% combined. Wow. In taxes every year. And even on that note about taxing the rich, paying their fair share, also taxing corporations. Yes, to your point, it sounds great in theory. And in the idea of taxing corporations, these big, big, bad corporations sounds great. But that trickles down into their profits, which trickles down into their employee base. That means they have less budget to pay you, the employee, the person who doesn't want to have to suffer, thinks that the corporation itself is going to suffer from high taxes. Where does their revenue to pay taxes come from? They're not going to lessen their own profits they're going to cut costs. Exactly. They're either going to cut costs or push the price onto the consumer, yep. which is you. Yeah. So raise prices of products and services or cut costs at home, overhead, aka humans. So yeah, so that's the taxing the rich, taxing corporations portion. It sounds good in theory, but it doesn't make sense. The second part of combating national debt is by selling it to other countries. And China is a country that owns a large portion of our national debt. And the point I made with Scott is that when you're selling your debt to someone else, you're selling your money, you're selling your power to somebody else who does not have American interests at heart. China does not have America's interests at heart. I think everybody can agree on Definitely that. Definitely not. They're willing to play the slow game. So bad situation, a vulnerable and compromising position for America to put ourselves in with our national debt, especially when it comes to other countries. And lastly, if we can't tax the rich and we can't sell our debt enough to push down our national debt, then the government has to buy it back. And the way that the government pays for the debt is by printing more money than before. And so when you're in a time of inflation, the dollar already is worth less than it was a year or two ago. You're going to print more and make it worth even less. That's a very easy way to bankrupt every single human being who lives in this country because your paycheck doesn't change, but the value of your paycheck does. I know it was on the podcast you had with Scott. What was the debt per U.S. citizen? It was like almost $300,000. Yeah, no, that that's insane. I know. There's not a good way out of this except to play the long game, take a page out of China's book, and stop government 
government spending and try to pay this down. Yeah, no, I totally in agreement with that. In my lifetime, the government has always run a deficit, mm-hmm. regardless if it was Republican or Democratic administration, which is sad. We haven't run a government surplus since 2001. So for those who might not be familiar, the government has a budget every year. And what they actually spend, when you compare it to the budget, if it's over, the year ends in a budget deficit. If you don't spend as much as you budgeted, then it's a budget surplus. We haven't run a surplus since 2001. And so every year since 2001, we've gone further and further into debt, strictly as a result of government spending. So for reference, in 2021, the federal government brought in about $4 trillion in tax revenue. That's how the government raises money is taxes. The government spent $7 trillion. That was 2021. So we ran a $3 trillion deficit in 2021, where already the Biden administration said they're projecting that government spending will be, I don't know the exact figure, but I know that we're expecting to run a $2 trillion deficit by October, so not even by the end of the year. Now, what does that do for the national debt? Well, you guessed it. It makes it so much worse. <laughs> And one of the reasons why, you know, spending is so high is because of entitlements. So what I mean by entitlements is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Social Security made up in 2021, 40% of government spending. Medicare and Medicaid made up 23%. Two thirds of government spending in 2021 alone was for entitlements. Two thirds. You know, you might have heard that military spending in the U.S. is insanely high. And it is. Mm-hmm. It's like $800 billion. The next number two is China at just under 300 billion. This is 2021. So the US, we spend more on military spending than like the next 20 countries combined or so. Now, regardless of how you think about that, maybe as an American, you know, you feel a duty to protect other countries. I totally agree with that. I frankly feel much more comfortable knowing we spend the most on our defense. Yeah. And so I'm not necessarily bummed out about that figure. But when you think about you've heard how huge America spends on defense and military, that was 800 billion. That was 10% of government spending. Entitlements were over five times. Wow. To put it in perspective. Oh my gosh. And then when you look at Biden's Build Back Better plan, when you look at his Inflation Reduction Act, it talks about making life easier for your average you know, American by making these programs more robust, which is literally just spending more with them. Yeah. And the sad truth is that entitlement spending is only going to get worse. There's yeah. no prospect of entitlement spending decreasing, of the U.S. government possibly running a surplus. There's no prospect of that. One of the reasons is Social Security is only going to get worse. When you think about, you know, we're getting to the time in today's world where baby boomers, the baby boom generation, they're retiring. What that means with such a large proportion of the population belonging to that generation retiring is that Social Security is only going to go up. Now, with Social Security going up, that means we're only going to be running a higher deficit, which is only going to increase national debt even more. So... Actually, Elon Musk was saying this. He says that one of the biggest issues that the U.S. will face in the near future is population collapse. That's not something you really hear every day. To sustain a population, you need like 2.3 births. Right, like like more people being born than there are passing away. Or just to sustain a population, you need the fertility rate needs to be like 2.3 births per woman Couple. or something like yeah. that right now it's it hasn't been at 2.3 in the 21st century right now it's at like 2.1 or something like that over the last 50 years most of the time it's been below that number the baby boom for reference was 3.8 so that was the average people that, were that, having that was the four rate. kids yeah Whoa. that that was that was the rate is 3.8 births per woman so to sort of bring that full circle we don't have that many people replacing the population mm-hmm We don't need the necessary amount to sustain our population level. And as a result, we're going to have fewer people that are able to pay for Social Security. So the problem is sort of twofold. Not only are the amount of people on Social Security going to be increasing, but the amount of people able to pay for Social Security is decreasing. Wow. So when you consider that, it's like, okay, something needs to change fiscally. And by fiscally, I mean the federal government specifically. Something needs to change. Yeah. This goes back to term limits. Older people in Congress have no incentive to do anything about that. They want to care for the people on Social Security. Yep, because that's them. They can resonate with that more. And let me just say, like, I don't have a problem with Social Security necessarily. I think it was a good idea when FDR came up with it. But it's it's not feasible to Mm -hmm. continue in the way that it has been going for 
X amount of years. Right. So to sort of sum up the whole idea of national debt, government spending, government deficits, a lot of it circles around entitlements. To reiterate, I don't really have a problem with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. I think that they've been pretty effective, you know, since their inception. A lot of people rely on those. But regardless, looking forward, you and I, we're going to have to deal with the debt at some point. Yeah. And if a lot of it, a lot of government spending circles around those entitlements, we got to change that. And we don't need something to change overnight. Sure. That'd be great. But nothing changes overnight. Nothing that big. As long as we can see light at the end of the tunnel, as long as we can see that there's a plan in place, then yeah, let's do it. Regardless if it's a Democratic plan or a Republican plan. But when that debt comes due, and it's going to come due in our lifetime. Yeah, it is. I mean, we need to take steps toward addressing it. And it really doesn't seem like anyone is. People are more concerned with other topics that are just not as important. That's what I don't get. It seems like the people in Congress, those people have children, have families to think about and their future. And so the fact that this has not been addressed, the fact that there hasn't been a plan put in place is ignorant and arrogant, frankly. And I mean, doing my research on Scott's episode, people think that nothing happens. People think our national debt goes up and it just doesn't mean anything. It goes back to confidence in the government. Yeah. What I was saying about Bernie reading those polls. If 16% of the country approves of Congress, I mean, that, that that should be red flag enough. It should be. I mean, Congress is out of touch. Our government is out of touch with what the people want. And everybody knows that they're getting bought out or they're in the pocket of China or they are operating in an underhanded way in some capacity for yeah. a large portion of them. You know, Trump campaigned on draining the swamp. Yeah. And the whole establishment is coming after him for it because they don't want to leave. That's why term limits have not been implemented yet because the people in power won't let it. Well, yeah, that's the other thing about term limits is in order to implement them, Mm -hmm. we need the approval of the people that it would directly affect, which is not going to happen because why would they want to change the system that has treated them so successfully? Exactly. And even tying it back to our first topic, which was about voter laws and election integrity, the people who might be a little bit corrupted, who want to stay in Washington or have special interests, depending on who's going to be in office, have something to gain for some shenanigans that could happen on the side. So we, as millennials and as Gen Z, need to find ways to protect our country from being corrupted that way. Because if the population is in decline, like you're talking about, if our national debt is through the roof and there's no plan in sight, what country are we looking at when someone else owns our debt, owns our power? We're, yeah, we're looking at something that is definitely degraded from what the founding fathers envisioned. In today's day, there's such a stigma around the founding fathers that, oh, it was like all these, you know, privileged white men. They were white men. They mm-hmm. were privileged. That doesn't mean that they had bad ideas. Right. That doesn't mean that they didn't have, you know, good intentions. And another reason why I think, you know, you pursuing this podcast is such a good idea is that we need youth. We need new ideas. And actually something interesting that I looked up with the founding fathers was that they weren't just old, you know, men that had found success and then were like, oh, I guess we'll go start a new country, whatever. They had visions. They had a plan for the future. They were invested in their future, their kids' future. At the time that the Declaration of Independence was signed, here are the ages of some of the founding fathers. Am I going to, is my jog about to drop? Probably. Oh my gosh. Okay. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, third president of the U.S., was 33. He was he was 33. He, he was only 33. That's five years older, six years older than me. Yeah. Next one, James Madison. I think he was the fourth president of the United States. He's considered the father of the Constitution. At the time the Declaration was signed, was 25. Alexander Hamilton, who was all for the Federalist Papers, everything that he had to offer the U.S. At the time the Declaration was signed, was 21. Aaron Burr, 20. John Marshall, first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was 20. James Monroe, 18. 18 years old. My jaw is on the floor. It is on the floor. What are we doing with our lives? The, the, the idea, yes. Well, you're doing something productive. So, so the idea of the youth being involved in politics, being involved in government, is an idea that has existed since our country was the founded. The beginning of our country. It was founded on yeah. fresh youth yeah. who were informed. Yeah, who, who had a vision, who were invested in the future, 
who cared about bringing together good ideas and creating something that had never existed and creating something that would be beneficial not only to its citizens, but the world. Still my jaw is on the floor. Yeah. I, I mean, think it, about, it's, it's really weird to think about like how young they were. Think about how smart, educated, knowledgeable, cultured these people were to develop a vision, create something that was a hybrid of all the most successful governments in the entire world as 20-year-olds. And here we are with 88-year-olds in Congress who aren't developing any kind of vision for the future of how to take care of this nation's children when push comes to shove. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to making informed decisions about who you're electing. And it's important to consider both sides of an argument, both Democrat, Republican, Yep. whatever. It's important to consider both sides. It's important to be informed. It's fine if you find yourself in the middle, as long as you're in the educated middle, not in the uninformed middle. You should have a stance on every major political topic and vote accordingly. Yeah. And for young people to get involved, I think is the way forward and to be more informed on both sides of the aisle and decide what you believe and what the right path forward is. Because our founding fathers did that. And we have to maintain that generation by generation. Because the less attention we pay over the years, the easier it is for big business, corrupt politicians, or countries who want to take over our position on the world stage can take advantage of us. The more informed you are, the better decisions you'll make, the better off our country will be. That hammers at home. I love it. Oh, I'm so glad we did this. Thank you so much, Scully, for coming on. You've been an awesome, awesome guest. Yeah, we, we don't really talk politics in this depth we don't home, so. so it's interesting to hear yeah. your point of view especially as somebody from a younger generation okay i did not mention this at the beginning of the episode but we were drinking wine <laughs> the we whole were. time we were and even though it looks like you may have finished your glass we I, I have need you to rate it do you okay. want a sip of mine so you can rate it one more time no i have a number of mine okay but let me preface it by saying i'm 22 years old. I'm not a huge <laughs> wine drinker. <laughs> You're more of a beer guy. Still getting integrated into the wine community, but I would give this one seven. A seven. Okay. A seven. So for those of you out there who want to know what wine Scully just rated, it was the Desenio Malbec in 2020. I think we maybe had this with Nash on the episode previously, but Scully gave it a pretty high rating. Yeah, well, that's why I preface because I'm not sure how much my opinion or my ratings mean. <laughs> well, so. I'll have to have you back on once you've had a little bit more experience rating wines and then give it like a true, I'll, true judgment. I'll get there someday. And I love I'm it. sure that at that day, this podcast will still be going. So I'd love to come back on. Absolutely. You're welcome to come back anytime. I'll be back next week. Woo. Love it. <laughs> All right, Scully, where can everyone find you? You're talking social media? Yeah. You can okay. find me on Instagram at Scully Genevine. Love it. Super unique. Super unique and to the point. Yeah, that's probably the only thing you'll find me on. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Thanks, y'all. Um, really appreciate you tuning into this episode. And if you like it, please give it five stars, share it with a friend, and I'm open to any feedback. This has been Jane Marie Barnes and Scully Genevine on all things government failure for Gen Z. Way to hammer it home. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.